Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Many acquisition entrepreneurs envision buying not just one business, but multiple businesses over the span of their careers. Their vision is a holdco, or what people are calling a permanent equity firm, which is like private equity, except that you buy companies and hold them indefinitely rather than selling them after a few years. It's an attractive model, and Justin Turner is the co-founder and managing partner of just such a firm. Traction Capital did its first acquisition in 2018 and has done three more since across a variety of industries. In this interview, Justin tells me how he's done it. I knew very little about how this works. And for those of you out there attracted to the idea of buying multiple different businesses, this episode is for you. I also want to plug a future episode with Chenmark, another well-known permanent equity firm. I'll be interviewing the founders of Chenmark in a couple weeks, so watch for that in February. Okay, here is Justin Turner, co-founder of Traction Capital. Justin Turner, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You are the co-founder and managing partner of Traction Capital, which is a permanent equity fund. You've made four acquisitions of small businesses um, that all seem to be doing pretty well. And so what I want to spend our time on today is how does somebody start a permanent equity fund or, or, or business? There, on SMB Twitter, there's a, lot of inter- there's a lot of overlap between acquisition entrepreneurs and the idea of kind of having a hold co or permanent equity, permanent equity vehicle or fund of some kind. And here you are uh, a few years into it. So I figured you'd be a great guy to give us a playbook. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let's, uh, let's kick it off though with your background, Justin. Um, give, it, give me two or three minutes on, on your history, your professional history, and, and kind of uh, right up to the point that you were inspired to start Traction. Sure. Uh, so I grew up uh, outside of Seattle, about an hour and a half outside of Seattle. Uh, went to a small Christian private school in the Seattle area called Northwest University for undergrad, studied finance and accounting there. Uh, and then I worked for a handful of years at an undergrad and my, during my senior year undergrad for a kind of boutique investment bank out here in the Northwest. Uh, I was on their mergers and acquisitions team, working with businesses that were based on the West Coast. And you know, learned a lot doing that. Great experience. The my boss um, from that time period is still a, a dear friend and a great mentor to me. Um, but I eventually got got pretty burnt out on the investment banking side of things. And you know, we would we mostly did sell side advisory work, so working with business owners that were looking at having an exit, and we would kind of help manage and run that process for them. But we also had some buy side clients who retained us to look at acquisitions as part of their growth strategy. And, you know, I was young at the time and I would go home and think about like, you know, what would it, what would I do if this was my business uh, Mm -hmm. rather than just a client's business? And Mm -hmm. I eventually got, you know, burnt out on what I felt was their lack of ability to, you know, take the risks that that we thought were necessary to really have the growth that they were looking for. And so I I knew that I wanted to get over to the buy side. And in my mind, that was working for a private equity group where we were going in, putting our money to work, putting investor money to work, but then we were responsible for for growing it. And that seemed seemed like a lot of fun, seemed exciting. Uh, it was what I was passionate about at the time. So I took a job with a private equity group down in Austin, Texas, 
mm-hmm. our focus down there was on acquiring majority positions in business that was that were headquartered in Texas that had sub fifty million in revenue at the time of our investment. Um, I was there. I was with them for about two years. First year was largely on the deal side of things. So a little bit of sourcing, a lot of analysis, a lot of due diligence, and then kind of working the deal with our partners up through the closing of that. The The second year I was there, I was largely on the operation side. I was VP of finance for a roll-up that we were doing in the rotational plastic molding industry. So spent a lot of time all over Texas in our factories, in our plants, um, working on the finance and operations side of things. Mm-hmm. Was in Texas for a couple of years. Wanted to get back up to the Northwest. It's where I'm from. Um, my sisters and my folks are still up here. So moved back up to the Seattle area in the end of 2016. Bought part of a small consumer products company with another family. Helped run that for a couple of years. And then I had some great connections that I had known before going to Texas that we all were kind of thinking the same way of, you know, we it would be awesome to, you know, invest in and have a portfolio of small businesses here in the Northwest that we were coming alongside the management teams and figuring out, you know, how to grow the business for the long term. So I sold my ownership in the consumer products company and started traction. Uh, we got our first deal done October of 2018, but we spent probably six months to a year, you know, looking at deals before we closed on our first acquisition. So October 2018 was the first acquisition. You spent six or 12 months before that looking for that first deal. And yep. with the that acquisition, that's really when traction kind of started proper. Yeah. I mean, we 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 had the concept. We knew what we were looking for. We knew what we wanted to do, but it just took a while to find that first deal. Um, and I think that's probably a common story that you hear with a lot of you know, searchers or other investors is when you're first starting out, it, it can take a little while, you know, to find that first one. But so, uh, differentiate for me what traction is as a a buyer of small businesses versus a, uh, I guess a conventional private equity fund, or if there's a difference. Sure. Um, you know, I think the biggest difference between our model, well, a couple of differences between our model and traditional private equity. Traditional private equity is oftentimes raging, raising a large fund that will go out and make a, a lot of different investments out of that single fund. And that fund will typically have a 10-year life. And their goal is to buy companies, grow them, and sell them you know, as quickly as possible. So their typical hold period is going to be you know, three to five years. Um, and then they're going to exit that and, you know, work on raising their next fund and then go do the whole cycle over again. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so the, there's always an expectation of exiting the businesses that they buy. Yeah. The, on the, on the true private equity side of things, um, the majority, you know, probably 99% of them are focused on buying, building, and then selling the business within a, you know, compressed time frame. Yep. Our our model, you know, we're buying businesses without the, you know, expectation or a defined, you know, hold period. Our goal is to own them for the next 10, 20 years. Um, and that's partly, you know, driven by our, you know, passion to help grow these businesses. I think, you know, you miss out on the power of compounding if you are selling after three to five years. 
And if you have a good business and you're able to execute on the strategy, you really start to get the benefits of compounding the longer you can hold that investment. So we and, mm -hmm. go ahead. I was just going to say, and so is this is this is what now people refer to as permanent equity. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say that's a, a definitely a newer term, but yeah, I think I think for the most part, especially the folks on Twitter would would call that you know <laughs> a, a permanent equity or yeah or long very long term hold yeah yeah. And it, 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 as as we both just kind of hinted at, permanent equity maybe is kind of a new term for an old concept. Is what you're doing newfangled, or is this something that people have always done? It's just called different things over time. I think I think some people have always done it. Um, there's certainly some large examples of people that have done it. I think for like Warren Buffett, <laughs> uh, he he would be the greatest example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for smaller businesses, um, for po for folks that are using a, you know, leverage buyout structure or buyout structure, I think it's a newer concept. Um, so we'll see how it proves out. I mean, I think most of the firms that are on the smaller side that are pursuing it are, you know, outside of maybe one or two are, are still very, very early on. I mean, we, we started in 2018, so we're hardly a long-term hold vehicle at this point. So so it, it, do I understand correctly that m maybe what's new is that the idea of uh, kind of a permanent equity vehicle done at kind of a smaller, for smaller size businesses, maybe with an, an SBA loan as the first acquisition, that's kind of a, a new trend? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, Okay. I would say so. And of course, Brent Bishore is is kind of a leading light in this world, and I think he his, the name of his fund is Permanent Equity. So is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. It yeah. started out as Adventures, and then they changed the name here within the last couple of years to Permanent Equity. And was that uh, seeing what Brent was doing? Was that something that you were aware of when you when you started thinking about traction? He's certainly been super inspirational. I think very highly of him and their firm and, you know, reading the stuff that they put out, hearing him on podcasts, especially, you know, when I was coming back from Texas in 2016 and 2017, um, loved what they were trying to accomplish. I've gotten to spend a little bit of time with Brent um, and yeah, a huge fan of what, what they're doing. And just to, not to put too fine a point on it, but this idea of holding for a longer term so that you can really enjoy the benefits of compounding, why is that not more of a model in the private equity world? Like, I, I understand that private equity, you know, is is based around funds that have a life cycle, and you need to return capital to your investors. But it just it seems um, obvious that you know, and, and compounding is talked about constantly online and, and everywhere. And, and we can just look at Warren Buffett's career and, and understand it's the principle there. It just seems kind of obvious that um, a lot of the benefit would accrue in years eleven through twenty rather than years you know, three through five. So I guess why, why isn't this more done? Cause it, cause it doesn't sound, it sounds like there's, there's kind of a small handful of, of funds doing this. Correct me if I'm wrong on that too. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely a, a small subset of the buyout industry that has the long-term hold perspective. I think there's a number of reasons for it. I'm, I'm probably not an expert in all those reasons, but I think a big part of it 
at least on the larger fund level, is driven by you know the need to return capital to investors, yeah. which are oftentimes, especially for the bigger funds, are oftentimes you know large endowments, large retirement systems that you know since the private equity world started has been driven on putting money in. You know it's going to be locked up. You know there's going to be illiquidity for a period of time, but you're going to get a in theory a higher return on those dollars for that illiquidity that you have and you know those those firm or those investors need to get that capital back at some point i think there's also i i think on the investor side of it the private equity side of it they have to show those returns to justify the next larger fund that they're raising yeah. um, which drives their ability to make fee income and do deals, post a track record, and then raise a fund again. And so that's just that that's the life cycle of what the industry has been. Um yeah. and I think it's I think it's hard for the LP side of it to get on board with, hey, I'm I'm gonna have my money locked up in this long-term vehicle for 20 years. Like I, I don't know what's gonna happen in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely a newer concept. I think more and more people are gonna be trying to go that route i think partially you know on twitter it's because it's the you know the sexy term the cool term right mm. now to to try mm -hmm. and be that person i think largely inspired by brent b shore and chen mark and mm -hmm. those forks but mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. great well let's get into how you have started building this private equity um uh, fund so uh acquisition number one october 2018 what was that business and if you can share any numbers behind it that'd be great yeah, it's a business called Sea Western. Uh, it's based in Kirkland, Washington. It's a distribution business that sells PPE products to fire departments across eight of the Western states. Uh, the business has been around since the 70s. We bought the majority share of the business in 2018 from a brother and sister who were the children of the founder of that business. Um, the, the primary product lines we sell are the fireproof clothing that firemen wear when they're actually going out to fight a fire, as well as the breathing apparatuses, the SCBAs mm -hmm. and the air packs that they're wearing when they go out to fight fires. But we also sell all the hand tools, boots, gloves, station wear, um, all that side of things as well. Um, that business, when we bought it, was just in Washington and Oregon. Primarily, they did a little bit of work in Idaho. Uh, it was about $15 million in revenue when we bought it. Uh, that business is about 24, 25 million in sales per year now. So it's been a nice little growth story for us, uh, largely driven by our expansion into new geographies. So we're now in eight states versus the two that we were when mm -hmm. we first bought it. And was your vision when you acquired it that what level of operational involvement is there on your part or or the other folks in your fund? And and let me step back. Who are the other people involved in your in traction? Sure. So there's six of us at the traction level. Uh, myself and two other partners own the majority of the business. Our VP, Peter Bell, owns part of the business alongside of us. And then we've got two gals that are focused on kind of financial operations for the portfolio. So okay. Dale, okay. Dale Payne, one of my partners, uh, pretty much exclusively focused on the operational side of things as a resource for the various companies that we've invested in. And then Peter does some work on the operations side, some work on the deal side with me. 
And then we've got two gals that do finance and accounting, one that's kind of more a accountant and one that's a controller um, that work with the businesses to help with month end close, bank reporting, all that fun stuff. Okay. So, so with, the, we, with, the, with C Western, yeah, go ahead. What was the operational involvement there? Yeah. So with the first business, uh, we bought it from a brother and sister. The sister wanted to transition out pretty quickly. She largely ran the back office side of the things, purchasing, inventory management, accounting. Um, and she wanted the transition out pretty quickly. So we hired some folks and Dale from our team stepped in to kind of put together actual systems. The business used a lot of paper to run uh, mm-hmm. before we bought it. And so we've done a full ERP implementation Great, right? there. Low hanging yeah, fruit. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, so we've implemented NetSuite there. Uh, we try and implement NetSuite across the portfolio. It makes kind of the reporting and analysis side of things easier at the traction level if we have everything in the same ERP and accounting system. Um so we've people from Traction have certainly been fairly involved in operations. I would say, you know, a little bit less so now, uh, as we've added to the team there and the systems are, you know, working to drive the day-to-day side of things there. But there was certainly folks from Traction very involved to help with that transition process. With that transition and kind of n- th- those low-hanging fruit opportunities of process improvement putting in some tech, um, you, that was, you were driving that. And then, and then the brother stayed on Is he, is he the effectively the president of the company? He is, he, you know, I think, I think all owners go through this, but they, you know, they make the decision to sell. And then, you know, once they've decided on the party that they're going to sell to there, there's a period of time where you have to, like in any relationship, you have to get to know the other person you have to build trust with that person. And yeah, you know, the owner in this case is going from somebody who could make all the decisions on everything in the business to, hey, now I own a small part of it and I've got this new investment firm that is in charge. Like, I don't know if I want to sign up for the rest of my life working with these guys. So he signed an employment agreement to continue to run the sales side of the business for us. Um, He stepped into the CEO role about a year and a half ago. Um, So he's the CEO of that business today kind of really running and driving the growth and the expansion side of things for us. So it's been a great, yeah, it's been great. It's been great having him be a part of it. So that's October, 2018. That's your first acquisition. When was your second acquisition? Second acquisition, uh, it's a company called Swag Off Road. It's based down in Bend, Oregon. And we closed on that business in October of 2019. So a year later, Swag Off Road. And and so what does Swag Off Road do? So I got road. So it started out, um, the, the guy that founded it, Troy was, was passionate about kind of the off-road side of things. He built Jeeps and land cruisers and originally wanted to build kind of bolt on products for the off-road market. Hence the name swag off road. Mm-hmm. Um, he pretty quickly realized it's a very competitive market for bolt on aftermarket, you know, automotive parts. And, he transitioned to designing and selling light duty metal fabrication tools. Um, and oftentimes these tools are used by folks that are in the off-road world, but it's the folks that want to build their vehicle rather than use a credit card and bolt something onto their vehicle. So we design and sell light duty metal fabrication tools. Okay. And it's Not something I know 90, 97% e-commerce. 
um, about 80% through our website, um, 16 or 17% through our Amazon store. And then we've got a couple of wholesale customers that we sell to. And go ahead and tell us, well, first of all, if you could tell me the numbers on that one and then, and then also follow up with your other two acquisitions. So we just, we get a span of your entire portfolio. Sure. Um, so that business we bought, it was about three and a half million in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, that business is about 6 million in revenue for 2021. Um, had a great 2020, um, again, e-commerce people are, you know, mostly stuck at home working on projects in their garage and we sell tools to those people. So 2020 yeah, was a great perfect. year for us. Yeah. Um, the third business we, but we didn't get any deals done in 2020. Um, we got mm-hmm. really close on one. Um, but, but due to COVID that one ended up falling apart, unfortunately. Uh, the third business we bought is an asphalt paving business. It's based here in the Seattle area, largely serves the Seattle Tacoma market. And that business kind of fluctuates between seven and eight million a year in revenue. And then our fourth acquisition that we completed this year as well is a business down in Portland, Oregon, that is part retail kind of bedding, home goods, store, part e-commerce mattress business. Okay. Uh, E-commerce mattress, that's a, that's a competitive, that's a competitive world. It definitely is. It definitely (laughs) is. Yeah. On the paving company, I I have seen a, a couple of stories of, uh, in acquisition entrepreneurship around acquiring paving companies. It's one of those businesses that never occurs to you until, you know, you you start talking to people in this world. What is appealing about those businesses? Why why do they come up? It seems like such an, a niche business. Um, I the appeal for us, you know, that we we think the kind of greater you know, Western Washington area is going to continue to experience a lot of growth. Um, Mm -hmm. and the infrastructure part of it is a, a key part of being able to sustain that growth and support that growth. And so we think there's going to be a continual need for the road maintenance, road paving side of things. Um, it's a business that generates pretty healthy margins. You do have CapEx Mm -hmm. issues to manage through, but, um, you know, properly ran and focused on the right types of projects, you can generate pretty good cash flow from those businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there, but there's no recurring. Is there any recurring piece to it? Um, we have several contracts with um, kind of cable and fiber related businesses. So, as they mm-hmm. are going into neighborhoods, and you've probably all seen it, where there's a strip down one of the lanes of a road in your city that's been repatched. We mm-hmm. do a lot of that work, um, kind of coming in behind the cable and fiber businesses as they're making upgrades to their network. We're contracted to come in and fix the roads behind them. Okay. But outside of that, a lot of it is, is non-reoccurring. Um, it's, it's very relationship driven, um, on the kind of private side. And then the public side is, is largely bid work. So, Justin, you, you now have four businesses in the portfolio. I want to really understand how 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 this is structured. How like if I were uh, aspiring to do this, I didn't want to just uh, acquire a single company and be the operator of that company. Instead, I wanted to go more your path and and have a portfolio of companies. Sounds like the chronology was you found your first deal and you bought your first company. Um, 
so is that kind of kind of walk me through that? Is that right? And then and then how once you acquired that first company, then how did you? What was the structure? What did it look like to acquire the second? Because really, when you go from your first acquisition to your second acquisition, that's the moment where you go to to, to become a proper portfolio when you have more than one. Yeah. So walk yeah. walk me through those those first two acquisitions from the point of view of somebody who's got the vision to build something where they're holding a portfolio. Sure. Um, I you know I I think as we've talked about a little bit in the past, I think you really have to have the deal side of it lined up first. You certainly you certainly should be having conversations with folks that you think will be potential investors, unless you have the ability to write the equity check yourself. Um, but having those conversations about, you know, potentialities is one thing. I think having the deal, you know, either under IOI or LOI so that you can take an investor, hey, here's the deal. Here's how I'm thinking of structuring it. Here's what I'm willing to offer you on the equity side to help support the acquisition. Um, that that makes it real, but before yeah. that, you're you know it's all hypotheticals. Um, but I think having that deal in place, it can be very stressful uh, signing the LOI and getting close to closing without having all your equity dollars allocated. On our first business, I think we finalized the equity raise two weeks before you know all the funds were supposed to be wired out to the sellers. Um, so it can definitely be stressful. Yeah. Yeah, it can definitely be stressful, but um, we felt pretty confident that we'd be able to to pull it off. Um, but having that live deal to be able to show them and say, hey, here's the business. Here's the price we're buying it for. Here's what we've talked to the bank about supporting on the financing side of things. Here's what we're looking to raise on the equity side. Here's the terms we're offering for that equity piece. Um so you I had think, cultivated relationships and you said, I'm, I'm, I'm searching, I'm out looking for a deal. Um, and you, and you cultivated these relationships and said to them, when I find a deal, you know, I'd, I'd like you to be in it, or I'd like you to take a look at it. Um, you know, I'll reach out when I have a deal, you, you had a deal and you, and you did the rounds going back to all these individuals who, you know, had relationships with and, um, and, and officially raised, got them to actually stroke the checks or not. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, the the relationship part of it is is key. Um, unless you're able to, you know, fund it by yourself, which I think on the SBA side of things is maybe a little more realistic, depending on, you know, how you structure the deal. You get the benefit of some of the seller note um, being treated as equity in yeah. the SBA case, which can help kind of solve for that equity airball. But yeah, I think having those relationships, we were very fortunate. Uh, my partner Brian Haynes largely leads. Uh, our investor relations side of things. And most of our investors are folks who, you know, generated their wealth running and owning businesses that at one point looked a lot like the businesses that we're going after. Mm -hmm. So our investor group, you know, understands the risks, they understand the challenges. Um, they also know that, you know, properly executed, these can be, you know, really great investments to be a part of. Mm -hmm. So you did not use any SBA debt for this. You, you, yeah. yeah, we have not gone the SBA route. Um, we've worked with the same bank on all four of our transactions. It's a regional bank out here in the Northwest. Um, we've got, you know, non-recourse financing for all four of our deals. Um, so no personal guarantees, which I'm a fan of. Yeah. Um, and they're typically willing to lend, you know, somewhere between, up, I would say up to two to two and a half times senior debt to EBITDA 
for for the acquisitions that we've looked at. And so you needed to not use SBA because the deals were too big for SBA, or because the, um, or because other other constraints imposed by the SBA loan were were not going to be give you enough flexibility to do what you wanted to do. Yeah, we we one the SBA processes can be fairly onerous. Two, yeah. we wanted to try and avoid the personal guarantees. Yeah. Um, and I I I don't know the specifics on this, but I think it's a little more challenging if you want to try and do multiple acquisitions um, on the SBA side of things versus being able to go kind of traditional commercial lending with it. We were fortunate to find a banker that, you know, the, the, the bank had an appetite for acquisition financing. They were comfortable with doing cash flow based loans. And, you know, they they certainly they, they ask great questions on the, the diligence side of things. They've helped steered us away from a couple investments that we were looking at that we didn't do. Uh, so they've been a great a great partner for us. So you have them for a sizable piece of the acquisition, and then you've also raised equity from investors, and then presumably you you partners, the, the ones actually active in traction, running traction, that you you small handful of people um, yep. also put have some skin in the game. So those are kind of the three tranches. Yeah. So it in 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 our deals, you'll have we typically ask for some seller rollover. So that's one piece of the mm-hmm. capital structure. We, we mm-hmm. want the, the prior owner to continue, even if they don't want to be involved in operations, we, we want them to be at least engaged at the board level to help kind of shepherd the growth side of it. They're the experts in the business. Yeah. Um, and, and we view them as a, a tremendous resource to help, you know, make sure we don't step in potholes along the way. And so they can help us avoid um, you know, a lot of issues by having them engaged and incentivized to help grow it. So the rollover equity piece is part of it. Uh, a seller note is something we push for in mm-hmm. all of our transactions, which basically is, you know, we're going to pay them out a, you know, certain amount every month or every quarter for a couple of years as part of the purchase price. You have the bank debt, and then you've got the new equity that ourselves and our investors are putting into the deals as well. Mm-hmm. Of the new equity side of it, traction is typically around 30% of the equity dollars going into a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the balance is from our outside investors that we've worked with. The, the goal is to eventually get to a point where we're able to fund you know, all of the financing internally at traction and then kind of pick and choose which investors we want to bring into a deal based on you know, their skill sets or where we think they can add value with a, with a potential company. Great. And okay. So then for your second, second deal, how did, how, how did it look? How did that capital structure look and how did it play with your existing, your existing business and portfolio? Yeah. So the second business we bought, um, I would say the equity raise was a lot quicker on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think once you get your first one done, if you do well, you know, with that business, after you buy it, it makes the next one's a lot easier. Um, sure. Sure. So totally different industry than our first one. Um, but a business that we thought had a lot of potential, the, the gentleman running it, um, had started out as an engineer and, you know, wanted to start a business to get to the point where he was making more than his salary as an engineer. And the business very quickly surpassed that and got to a point where, 
he felt like he was over his head. He, he did not want to, you know, be in charge of payroll. He didn't want to be in charge of HR issues. He, you know, didn't want to do sales and marketing to grow the business. The business was growing in spite of all that. It's a, it's an e-commerce business that's when we bought it, spent no money on online advertising. Um, what a great acquisition. Everything about that sounds perfect for somebody who wants to take it to the next level. Yeah. So it's been a great, a great business for us. You know, we've really benefited from the culture that he had in place of, you know, high quality made in America products, great customer service. And, you know, he's got a passionate customer base that, that believes in the brand and believes in the product. So our, Mm -hmm. our challenge now is how do we continue to develop high quality products that we can, you know, provide to our customers that, that are, doing something in the metal fabrication industry. Um, so now it's more about, okay, what is the next evolution on the product side look like to continue to drive growth there? And we're looking at some acquisitions for that one um, to help grow it as well. So when you did this second acquisition, so is it is it, are they like completely discrete, the two acquisitions? There's really no um, kind of umbrella fund or financing. They're just basically two different companies and the investors and buyers of those companies happen to be the same people in traction. Yeah. Is that what so, it is? so, so we always set up a, a hold co op co structure for the deals and then traction capital, our parent LLC owns a majority of the hold co in each of our investments. So at close, we own the majority of the business, we have control of the investment. Um, but each business, we've done one add-on acquisition for one of our companies, but each business functions as its own individual business. All the bank debt is at the individual business level. It's not consolidated or cross-collateralized at all. So each business really has to stand on its own. That being mm-hmm. said, we we certainly are interested in doing add-ons. Um within the portfolio, within the industries that we've got businesses in right now. And then at the end of the end, everything does roll up to traction. So traction owns on a, you know, fully diluted basis anywhere on a fully diluted basis, probably 60% or so of, of the businesses. Mm -hmm. So if I want to do this, it sounds like, I mean, we're, you know, I'm sure you could give me a multi-hour tutorial on how to do this at a very granular level, but at a high level, you, you found your first deal. Um, you'd cultivated relationships with investors in advance um, in the bank and you know basically all, all, all that goes into doing a deal. So you'd put, put a deal together and you acquire this business and you, um, and you grow it and you, 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 know, you, you are involved in it operationally to, to do some of the early improvements. And then you kind of um, have an additional bandwidth now to go do your second business and you have a track record. You've, you've successfully acquired and grown, uh, your first acquisition. So now you have, um, you, you, you know, you have a track record and you have bandwidth to now go and do your second business and you kind of not to, to, um, belittle it, but rinse and repeat. I mean, you, you, you look for another business and, and, and then you can just kind of, kind of keep doing that. Um, it really indefinitely, as long as you have the bandwidth at some point, obviously you can't, you can't, you, Justin can't be involved in a hundred different companies. I mean, there's only so many, you know, so much bandwidth you have, but to, to the, to the point where you can, to the extent that you can scale it to the extent that you have the free bandwidth, you and your partners, you can just 
keep doing deal after deal. Is that right? You know, that would be the goal. I think if, if you're somebody that's the, the goal for us is to continue to do acquisitions. We want to, mm-hmm. we want to add to the portfolio of businesses, but we also are actively adding to the team attraction because we do want to be not just an investor. We want to be really alongside the teams helping to grow the businesses. So we, mm-hmm. we feel like at the traction level, we have to have the team to be able to support the portfolio operations side of things. But our mm-hmm. goal is to buy one to two businesses a year, whether that's an add-on within a specific portfolio company or a totally new investment, we're open to either. Um, I think if you're an individual that's looking to buy a business, I I, I question that whether or not it's realistic to go into that thinking, hey, I'm going to build this hold co from day one. Like as as one person, I wouldn't have been able to do four deals and have a portfolio of four companies that I'm managing. We we mm-hmm. had I had other partners when we started because our goal was to get to having a portfolio. It wasn't for Justin to buy a business and be the CEO and then after a couple of years transition to saying, no, actually now I'm going to start building a portfolio. Our our goal from the beginning was to have multiple businesses that were under the traction umbrella. Um, so I think doing it by yourself, it's, it's going to be really challenging to have more than one business, unless you're buying businesses that have complete management teams where you don't have to be there, you know, to nothing day to day relies on you as the owner, uh, I think is the only way you can do that as an individual. Um, and it's, it's challenging, man. You got to find the deal. You got to be able to know where to find deals. You have to know how to read financial statements, um, and understand, you know, you have to be able to quickly get up to speed on industries. You have to know the questions to ask so that you don't miss something in due diligence. Um, so it's it's definitely challenging, but it's it's yeah. definitely doable, and it can be very rewarding. Um, you know, if you're able to to make it happen. Well, I was. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you. Is your you know you've got such a such a strong background in first in investment banking and then in private equity. And in fact, actually, between private equity and traction, you worked with the family office to kind of do your own acquisition. So you'd also, I mean, you just had a lot of experience. And so as somebody out there listening to this, you know, I ask myself, well, Justin has all this, you know, all this relevant M&A experience and, and basically all the, the skills that you just, that you just listed um, that to be successful at this one, one would need to develop. You, you had those going in. And I assume also your network. One thing I wanted to ask you about was your network. A lot of those people, you, you'd built that in your, in your previous career, uh, I assume. So um, talk to me about that. Like if I, if I could somebody without the, the really deep expertise that you came, financial expertise that you came to this with, uh, I imagine it's going to be more challenging for them or what are your thoughts? I think it's definitely doable. Um, one, like if you're passionate about buying a business, there's Google's going to be your friend. And also, <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're somebody that's looking to buy a business and you're involved on Twitter, there's tons of people that yeah. are willing to, to lean in and help answer questions, you know, bounce ideas back and forth, get really technical on issues that you're struggling with. Um, so I think it's definitely doable and you can, you can find people to help with the areas that you, you may be, you may be a great operator right now, but maybe financial statement analysis is not your skill set. You can find people to help one teach you that, but also help you as you're looking at your deals and trying to evaluate, you know, 
how to do evaluation work, how to structure, how to put together presentations for investors and lenders. There's folks that are willing to help with those things for sure. So I think it's, I think it's definitely doable. Um, you know, going the SBA route can, can be really helpful for folks that are, you know, maybe not coming from a finance background, um, and be able to, to get the acquisition financing that they need. Because you've, you've seen so many deals and, um, industries and size deals too, I would imagine. Could you weigh in on this question of, um, buying small versus like what, like if as an acquisition entrepreneur who, who is going to be the, the, an owner operator is going to work in the business. So now I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. This person is not trying to be Justin Turner. This person is just going to be the, the owner operator of a business. Um, you know, there's, there's often the temptation to buy kind of a, maybe a smaller business, a $1 million enterprise value business that throws off $300,000. And, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, that size of business I'm more comfortable with since this is my first time doing that. But then you have people who say, don't do that. Um, you know, a $4 million business or even a $5 million business is still a very small business and you can do it. Uh, I'm, 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 um, I'm invoking uh, the guys at uh, SIG, at, at Search Investment Group, um, who really push people to think a little bit bigger than buying just the $1 million business. Um, you, you, can, you can do it. You can, if you can run a $1 million business, you can run a 4 or $5 million business, and it's a much more efficient use of your capital and time to do that and leverage to do that. Um, any thoughts on this, on this uh, for lack of a better word, debate? Uh, I think it's probably a little bit, I mean, dep- all businesses. And so you are? are all, yeah, it depends on who you are. All businesses are a little bit different. Um, I think it's probably a little bit easier with the four to five million dollar business because there might be some semblance of a system and a process, and not just the solo entrepreneur that makes everything happen. Um, yeah, yeah. A, a business that is selling for a million dollars that makes three hundred thousand dollars a year. If you're buying that business to come in and run it, you are going to run it. You're going to do everything. You're like yeah. everything that happens in that business, you're going to be responsible for. At four to five, you've probably at four to five million, you've probably got a few other people on the team that are making sure some things happen every day. So it's probably a little bit easier to run that four to five million dollar business. Um, I, I think the folks that are out there that are passionate about this they're for the most part going to be quick learners. They're going to be probably really good with other people if this is what they're driving towards. And even if you don't have all the experience in the world, I think you could definitely jump in and run a four to $5 million business. You're going to have to learn. It's going to be a steep learning curve, but as long as you don't screw it up. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think, I think most people underestimate themselves. And to your point, don't, don't think big enough on what they, what they can accomplish. So speaking of all of the expertise available on Twitter, um, you're one of the people out there on Twitter. Can I have your Twitter handle for the audience? And then also if people want to reach out to you, is that the best way or is there, um, is email or LinkedIn a better way? What's your Twitter Uh, handle? First of all, please. It is Justin Nicholas T. Okay. Uh, and I would say I am an avid consumer of Twitter. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not an avid poster on Twitter, but uh, I enjoy you know reading people's perspectives and and all that. Well, um, well you post enough that I found you. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, people can reach out to me there. Uh, people can always shoot me an email, uh, jturner at tractioncp.com. Um, yeah, happy happy to help. Happy to help. I. 
I had a ton of people and still have a ton of people that are, are willing to give me advice. And I think, you know, passing it on to the next person is, is kind of your job as somebody who's started to have a little bit of success. You, you owe it to the people that are trying to figure it out. So always, always happy to help and, and try and be helpful where I can for sure. I love that. I love the spirit of that. Let's leave it on that. Justin, thank you very much. This has been a really uh, great tutorial on, on building a, a permanent equity, um, fund. So really appreciate your time. Well, appreciate you having me on. This was a lot of fun. 